Welcome back to Horror Story Podcast. I'm your host, Trish. This week, we're diving into the 1974 movie that launched a thousand slasher films, Black Christmas. Because, you know, nothing says holiday quite like homicide. But this isn't your average slasher film. There is loads to unpack here. Seriously, this film has got everything. True crime, urban legends, women's liberation, and dudes wearing fabulous and hopefully faux fur coats. Like I said, lots to cover, so let's jump right in. Black Christmas, as mentioned, was released in 1974. It was written by Roy Moore and directed by Bob Clark, who later went on to direct another quintessential little holiday film that you may know, A Christmas Story. Yep. The you'll shoot your eye out Christmas story. The plot of this movie follows a group of sorority sisters during winter break. Helmed by main character and feminist warrior Jess, alongside the sassy, sharp tongue, and mostly tipsy Barb, their always tipsy house mother Miss Mac, the bespectacled nerdy but fun Phil, and the proverbial virginal good girl Claire. The girls begin to receive perverted and harassing phone calls at the sorority house. As people begin to go missing, the girls beg for help from the police, who ultimately discover that the calls are coming from inside the house. And if that sounds familiar, well, it's because the plot of this movie was inspired by both true crime cases and a very famous urban legend that we know and love, The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs. The story of the babysitter and the man upstairs is a legend that is believed to have originated in the 1950s as a cautionary tale based off of the real and tragic murder of Jeanette Christman, a 13-year-old girl from Columbia, Missouri, who was babysitting the Romack family's three-year-old son. That night, police received a phone call from Jeanette. The only things they can make out was Jeanette yelling for them to come quick. They were unable to get her name, address, or any other identifying information. They were also unable to trace the call. Jeanette's body was found by the Romax at 1.30 a.m. when they returned home that night. She had been raped, stabbed, and strangled to death. The Romax son was unharmed and had slept through the entire ordeal. While there were some suspects, no one was officially charged. The legend that developed from this case has some variation on certain details, but for the most part it's the same across the board. A girl is babysitting and starts to receive concerning phone calls from a man. In some cases, he laughs, in some he breathes heavily, but in all accounts, he tells her to go upstairs and check the children. Eventually, the calls become so frequent and disturbing for the girl that she reaches out to the police. They ask her to try and keep the man on the phone the next time he calls so that they can trace it. After she receives yet another disturbing phone call, the police call her and tell her she needs to get out of the house immediately. The calls are coming from inside the house. There was another true crime case that inspired Moore when writing the film script. It was that of George Webster, a 14-year-old boy from Westmont, Montreal, Canada. In 1943, George bludgeoned his mother to death with a baseball bat. 
It was said that his brother, sister, and a family friend also sustained injuries but survived the attack. George never gave a reason as to why he did what he did that night. While he was determined to be criminally responsible for the murder of his mother, he was deemed unfit for trial and placed into a psychiatric institution. All right, now that we've got some background, let's dive into the play-by-play here. The film opens on the Pi Kappa Sigma sorority house. It's nighttime and the girls are having a party, celebrating with one another before some of them leave to go back home for winter break. We're seeing things from the killer's point of view, which was a novel concept at this time. There really weren't many films using or incorporating this style of shooting. He lurks around the house, peering in the windows. He walks around the perimeter, finding his entry point in by scaling up some trellising on the side of the house. And we now meet our main characters, Barb, cocktail in hand as you'll come to know and love her, Phil, Claire, and Jess. The camera cuts back and forth between the killer's point of view, making his way inside the girl's attic that he uses as a hideout throughout the film, and the girl's downstairs winding down from the party. The killer makes his way onto the second floor of the house and hides in Claire's closet. Claire is downstairs saying goodbye to her boyfriend Chris, who is wearing one hell of a fur coat. It's kind of fabulous on him, and it reminds me of the fur coat that Putty wears on Seinfeld. We finally get to witness a call from the killer who has apparently been calling the girls for some time now, because when she picks up, Jess calls out to the girls, Hey, it's him again, the moaner. We listen in with the rest of the girls as the caller groans, snickers, and snores, and of course says some perverted things. Barb grabs the phone and tells him to stick his tongue in a wall socket, and he replies with, I'm going to kill you, and hangs up. Claire gets upset at Barb's response, telling her that she shouldn't provoke the caller. The scene's set up so that you can see Claire is a little more reserved than some of the bunch and is clashing a bit with how vocal and well-liberated Barb is. The two exchange some words, Claire gets upset and heads upstairs to pack for winter break. Her father is coming to pick her up tomorrow afternoon. The house mother, Miss Mack, another big fan of the drink, arrives and the girls usher her in quickly to shower her with Christmas presents. Upstairs, Claire begins packing, but she isn't alone. The camera switches to the killer's point of view and we see he's hiding in the closet behind some clothes. Claire hears meows from Mrs. Mac's cat, Claude, that sounds like they're coming from the closet, and she tries to call out to him. As she makes her way closer, she realizes that there's someone in there. She inches closer and closer, asking, who is it? With no reply. Suddenly, the killer lunges at her and throws a plastic bag over her head. He suffocates her, her struggle muffled by the girls downstairs, celebrating and exchanging gifts with Mrs. Mac. The killer makes his way back into the attic to hide Claire's body. As the night comes to an end, we see Miss Mac sneaking to the bookshelf and removing a book with a secret compartment that hides a bottle of alcohol. I told you she was a fan of the drink. And also, that is not the craziest place she hides the hooch, as we see later on. The phone rings, and it's Jess's problematic walking red flag of a boyfriend named Peter. Peter has aspirations of being a concert pianist and was unable to make the party because he's been rehearsing for days for an audition that he hopes could advance him in his career. Jess lets him know he needs to carve out some time for her because she's got to talk to him about something and it needs to be done in person. 
He agrees to meet her the following day. This conversation is happening while Miss Mac is wasted brushing her teeth in the bathroom upstairs. She decides to forego the mouthwash and pulls out another bottle of liquor from behind the toilet, like in the thing behind the toilet with the ball cock and stuff. Yeah, she's hiding booze in there. She gargles with the alcohol and then takes a few swigs. I mean, why bother brushing your teeth at this point? (laughs) Anyway, as Jess makes her way upstairs to go to bed, she knocks on Claire's door to check on her. When she doesn't answer, she assumes she's sleeping and moves on. The camera then cuts to Claire, upstairs, in the attic, in a rocking chair, with the plastic bag still around her head, the chair eerily rocking back and forth. As the camera fades out, we can hear the killer sing Bye Baby Bunting, an old English nursery rhyme. It's the next day, and we see Claire's father waiting in the courtyard of the university. Claire was supposed to meet him, but, of course, she hasn't shown up. And now he's concerned. He asks a student for directions and makes his way over to the sorority house. Claire's father speaks with Miss Mac, who says that Claire's suitcase is packed, but she hasn't seen her. And now we've reached a really pivotal scene for Jess and her boyfriend, Peter. They're in the rehearsal space, Peter is sitting at the piano, and Jess tells him that she's pregnant. Peter immediately gets excited, while Jess has a very distant expression on her face. She tells him that she does not want the baby, and she's going to have an abortion. Peter says, you can't make a decision like that, you haven't asked me yet. In so many words, Peter says the timing of this conversation is selfish. He has his big audition this afternoon, and now with this looming over him, he's all unglued. Jess says that she's given it careful consideration, and she knows what she wants to do, and what she's going to do. Peter says they need to continue the discussion later that night, and while Jess is adamant that she will not change her mind, she agrees to talk with him that evening and makes her way back home. Jess arrives home to a call from the killer. This time he's acting out parts, doing multiple voices, both female and male. He asks for Billy and wants to know what he's done with the baby Agnes, a routine that he does with most of the calls going forward, mixed with his grunting, snickering, and screaming. Jess is very disturbed and hangs up. We now cut to Barb, Phil, and Claire's father at the police station. They're concerned about Claire's disappearance and want the police to look into it. The officer they speak with, Sergeant Nash, tells the father that he can file a report, but she's probably just shacked up with a guy somewhere and brushes it off. Thanks for nothing. Back of the house, Jess tells Miss Mack about the phone call, and Miss Mack in turn updates Jess about Claire's disappearance, and how everyone went to report it to the police. Jess is deeply concerned and decides to go see Claire's boyfriend, Chris, to see if he's seen or heard from her. Chris becomes infuriated when he finds out the police aren't taking the matter seriously. He throws on that fabulous fur coat of his, storms into the police station, and goes off on Sergeant Nash for his shitty comments about Claire and dismissing their concern. Lieutenant Fuller hears the commotion and talks with Chris and Jess to find out what's going on. Back at the house, Barb, who is pretty drunk, starts making the dinner conversation a little too weird to handle as she slurs about a specific species of turtle that can have sex for 72 hours straight, and how apparently zebras suffer from premature ejaculation. Don't question it, just watch the movie. She then slumps down on the couch and accuses everyone of thinking that she's to blame for Claire's disappearance, 
because of their little exchange the night before and how Claire sort of stormed off to go pack. The conversation gets a little heated and Phil tells Barb it's bedtime. She's way too drunk and the conversation needs to end. Surprisingly, Barb goes quietly. While all this is happening, Peter is totally blowing his audition. Like, I mean, blowing it. It's basically like he's slamming the keys with his fist, or at least that's what it sounds like. We later see him demolishing the piano that he's been practicing on. His dream is dead. Jess and Chris return from the police station and update everyone on what's happened. While there, they've learned that apparently Claire isn't the only girl that's missing in town, and that a search party has now formed for both Claire and the other missing girl, Janice. They decide to all go join the search party and help. Before they leave, Miss Mack lets Phil know that she's leaving for her sister's house to spend the Christmas holiday. She might be gone by the time they come back from the search. The group heads out, leaving Miss Mack and Barb alone in the house. Miss Mack is drunkenly packing for her trip when she hears Claude meowing and begins to follow the sound through the house. The meows lead her to the ladder to the attic. She climbs up and into the attic, about halfway, peeking her head in and leaving her bottom half still standing on the ladder below. Behind her is the killer, watching, waiting, and holding onto a hook that's attached to a pulley. She's scanning the attic for Claude when her eyes finally reach Claire's body. She gasps and turns to see the killer standing behind her in the shadows. She lets out a scream as the killer releases his grip on the hook. It catches Mrs. Mack, pulling her the rest of the way up into the attic. We see her feet disappear, and we hear her struggle. Back at the search for Claire and Janice, Jess tells Phil that she has to leave. It's time for her to meet Peter back at the house so they can talk some more. Again, as she enters the house, the phone rings. It's the killer. He's going bananas on the phone again. Jess hangs up and calls the police, wanting to file a report about the calls. While she's on hold, Peter comes downstairs from her bedroom. He said he got too cold waiting outside for her, so he let himself in. She tries to engage with him, but he's being really short and pouty and kind of childish. And Jess basically says, stop playing games. You said you wanted to talk, so stop being a child and have a rational adult conversation with me. In between keeping her cool with Peter, she's losing her shit on the line with the police. And I bet you can guess who she's talking to. Yep, it's dear old Sergeant Nash, the same officer who blew the girls off when they tried to report Claire missing just a few hours ago. He tells Jess that they're busy and doesn't know when they'll have time to look into the calls. He dismisses her, saying that it's probably just one of your boyfriends playing a little joke on you. I hate this guy so much. Peter asks Jess what's wrong, and she explains how distraught she is about Claire. He tries to reassure her that she's fine, but he has some news. He tells her he's changing career plans. He's quitting piano, and they're gonna get married. Jess is quiet for a while, and then she says to him, Do you remember when we first met? You told me about your dream of being a concert pianist, and I told you about some of the things that I wanted to do. Well, I still want to do those things. You can't ask me to drop everything I've been working for and give up all my ambitions just because your plans have changed. True icon behavior here. He asks about the baby, and again she tells him she's going to have an abortion. 
He condemns her not just for the choice, but for how natural she uses the concept of abortion in her speech. He tells her if she tries to go through with this, she's going to be very sorry. Jess tells him that he can't tell her what she can and cannot do, and tells him to leave. Back at the station, Lieutenant Fuller, the only one who seems to be working, gets wind of the fact that the same house where Claire lives, who is now missing, is the one who's receiving these obscene phone calls. He heads over to the sorority house with another officer to investigate. He arrives just as Peter is leaving. He tells Jess that he wants to tap the phone, and asks if she'll consent to do so, and she agrees. The officer who's tapping the line tells Jess that she needs to keep the caller on the phone as long as she can to give them time to trace it. They try to reassure Jess and Phil by saying that they're going to leave an officer outside to keep watch. The police leave, and we see that Peter hadn't left. In fact, he's lurking outside in the cold, watching the house. Phil breaks down saying she knows in her heart that Claire is dead and she feels so terrible for her father, Mr. Harrison. She mentions she's exhausted and heads upstairs to try and get some rest, leaving Jess to sit by the phone in anticipation all alone. Moments later, Jess hears Barb gasping. She's having an asthma attack. She runs upstairs to check on her and helps her with her inhaler. Barb mumbles something about having a bad dream and falls back to sleep. Jess hears carolers outside and heads downstairs to listen. While she's down there, the killer makes his way into Barb's room and stabs her to death with the horn of a unicorn statue that she has. Phallic symbol much? Jess is eventually pulled in by the sound of the phone ringing. She answers it, and it's the killer. He's whining and screaming and making noises, and then he says into the phone, It's just like having a wart removed. Now, this is significant, because it's the exact same phrasing that Peter used to describe how Jess approaches abortion. He tells her she's so nonchalant about going through with this, it's as if she's talking about having a wart removed. Of course, not realizing that the killer is inside, she turns her suspicions to Peter. She talks about her concerns with Phil, who's been unable to sleep, but apparently heard neither the carolers nor Barb's asthma attack slash death. The phone rings again, and now it's Peter. He's crying and begging her not to quote-unquote kill the baby. She tries to get him to calm down and asks where he is, but he hangs up. Which you kind of have to think, they didn't have cell phones back then, so... Where was Peter calling from? We just saw him outside. Anyway, Lieutenant Fuller, who's been listening in on each phone call calls the house and talks with Jess. He tries to determine if Peter could be a suspect and to let her know that she needs to do whatever she can to stay on the phone with the killer longer because they still have not been able to trace these calls. Understandably scared, the girls are now going through the house, checking to make sure that the doors and windows are locked. Upstairs, Phil enters Barb's room to check on her, and then we see the door slam behind her. The killer had been waiting for someone to come into Barb's room, and unfortunately for Phil, she's now his next victim. After he murders Phil, the killer makes another call to Jess. He's shouting names, grunting and groaning. Jess holds the line as long as she can, and thankfully, this time it's long enough for them to trace it. They discover that the calls are coming from inside the house. Fuller tries to radio the officer they had stationed outside, but he doesn't respond. 
The camera cuts to the officer outside of the house. His throat's been slit, and he's slumped over in the front seat of the squad car. Lieutenant Fuller radios over to Numbnuts Nash at the station, who's been brushing everyone's concerns off, and tells him he needs to get in touch with Jess. He needs to tell her that she has to get out of the house now. They're on their way over there, but say no more, no less, just get her out of there. Nash shockingly does as he's told and calls Jess. He asks her who else is in the house. She replies, Phil and Barb. He tells her to drop the phone and get out of the house immediately. She agrees to, but says she's going to go get her friends first. Nash freaks out, tells her not to go upstairs. He realizes he's got to tell her the truth in order to get her out of there. He lets her know that the calls are coming from inside the house. The killer is inside the house. Nash begs her not to go upstairs and to just leave. But come on, this is a horror movie. She's not leaving. (laughs) Jess drops the phone and screams for Phil and Barb to answer her. They don't. She grabs a fire poker from the fireplace and begins to make her way upstairs. She opens the door to Barb's room and then hears the killer hiding behind the door. She shoves the door into him and takes off down the stairs and into the basement and locks the door. She sees through the basement windows that someone is walking the perimeter trying to get in. Someone calls out for her. It's Peter. He then breaks one of the windows and enters the basement. He continues to call her name as he makes his way through the darkness. Jess tries to stay hidden from him, but he finds her. It then cuts to the sound of Jess screaming as we watch police finally arrive at the house. They head down into the basement to find Peter dead in Jess's lap. She's alive, but she's in shock. In our next scene, we overhear officers talking about how they knew Peter was the killer and the one responsible for the obscene calls. There's also a doctor at the house. He's given Jess a sedative, and she's now sleeping in her bed. The doctor tells Lieutenant Fuller that he's going to stay at the bedside with Jess until her parents arrive. We again overhear officers in the background talking and asking if they should complete a search of the attic, and one of them says, No, don't touch anything. Um, okay. Most of the officers start to disperse and leave the house, and suddenly Claire's father, who's been sitting at the bedside next to Jess, faints. The doctor says he's gone into shock and they must get him to a hospital. Chris and the doctor carry Claire's father downstairs and outside. The police and the doctor abandon Jess, leaving her all alone in the bedroom. The camera pans throughout the house, past the girls' rooms, up to the attic where the bodies of Mrs. Mack and Claire remain, and we hear the killer giggling and humming another nursery rhyme. The camera exits through the window and films the exterior of the house. It's completely dark inside. Everything looks quiet. Then, the phone rings. Well, we've reached the end of the film. Before I touch on a couple of things, I'm just going to say the thing that we're all wondering. Why did no one search the friggin' house? Oh my god, it drives me crazy every time I watch it. Why not do a sweep of the attic, just to check? It's bananas. But, with so much of the dialogue in the script being intentional, 
and the effort to highlight how dismissive Sergeant Nash was up until he warns Jess to get out of the house, you have to wonder if that wasn't meant as symbolism. Because with this movie, Clark wanted to portray a realistic modern-day woman with modern-day values and interests. He wanted a stark contrast to the Malibu Beach Barbie movies of the 60s, and hoped to feature a more accurate depiction of young college girls, but not in an exploitative, perverse way. Women have sex. Women drink. Women swear. Women are colorful creatures, and Clark showcased that as a strength. They weren't bouncing beach babes who existed merely for the male gaze, where so many slashers that followed could and would be labeled as misogynistic torture porn, Clark's was empowering and highlighted feminism while also portraying the backlash that comes along with that autonomy and self-assuredness. How spirited and empowered women, their futures, and their safety, well, they can kind of get devalued, and oftentimes are met with rage and hysteria. We can see that in Peter's response and treatment of Jess, and we can see that in how the police continuously brush off the girls when they're pleading for help. It's represented in the patronizing and frustrating interactions between Jess and her having to hold the line when she's trying to report an emergency to Sergeant Nash. How the girls are always not so subtly slut-shamed instead of taken seriously. And we see it at the end of the movie. Our heroine, our final girl, is sedated and left alone with the predator. No one bothered to check out the rest of the house. No one bothered to usher her to safety. While Claire's father was scooped up like a newborn babe and carted off to the hospital for treatment simply because he passed out from the stress of it all. He endured half of what Jess did and was coddled for it. The responses and the scales are not balanced here. The disregard for Jess's well-being and the concern for Claire's father's well-being could signify how the man remains the priority, or it could be representative of a form of punishment, such a liberated modern woman who dares to stick it to the patriarchy and live on her own terms deserves to suffer some kind of tragic fate. She deserves to be disregarded. She doesn't deserve our help. I think it's also interesting in the way abortion is approached here. There's no hiding it, but it's also not being flashed around either. It's spoken about calmly and commonly with no judgment from anyone except for Peter. After having the Supreme Court's ruling on Roe v. Wade just one year prior, I imagine for the characters in this world and those watching in both Canada and in the States, it must have been nice to have that be part of everyday vernacular and not feel like it's a dirty word that needs to be spoken about in whispers. When Jess speaks about it, she is cool, calm, and collective. She's not apologetic. She's autonomous, thoughtful, intelligent, and mature. And Peter behaves like a petulant child throwing a temper tantrum. But you have to wonder how much of Peter's response is his opposition to abortion or his response to lack of control over Jess. He proposes marriage. Well, he kind of demands it. And Jess still maintains composure. She's firm in her resolve, conviction cemented. She's not asking, she's telling. This is not a dirty secret for her. It's a decision. And she's not dependent on Peter. Peter, with all he's worked for pretty much down the toilet, thinks that marriage is going to be their new roles. He doesn't even give himself the time or opportunity to find a new dream. He just thinks that they're both going to throw themselves into a marriage. 
And I have to hearken back to what Jess says because it is profound. And again, especially at this time to step into feminism so surely. She responds to Peter with, you told me your ambitions and I told you mine. I still want those things. You can't expect me to give up my ambitions because your plans have changed. She's got a point. She is an icon. She is a legend. And she is the moment. Claire's death and the style in which her body is displayed could represent a guttural reaction from some males at the time who opposed women's liberation and abortion rights. The killer strangles Claire, takes her body, hides it in the attic, and poses her in a rocking chair with a baby doll in her lap. It's like he's saying, you can't leave the home. Stay here. Tend to the children. That is your role. Could it be that he's just a psychopath with parental issues or childhood trauma and that's how it's presenting itself? Sure, maybe. But given the various under and overtones of the whole film, it's pretty easy for me to draw on that symbolism. And it's also easy for me to see how the manner in which Claire is posed is very much a worst-case scenario for Jess in terms of how she views marriage, motherhood, and domesticity at this time. She does not want to end up like Claire. It is the metaphorical death of her sense of self. I'm going to leave off with this fun fact because you know I cannot resist a chance to tie John Carpenter into things. Carpenter was a big fan of Black Christmas and of Bob Clark. He wanted to work with him on a project, but it never got off the ground. He spoke with Clark about making a sequel to Black Christmas, and Clark said he had an idea for it, but didn't want to get boxed in as a horror movie director. Clark did share his idea for the sequel, though. He told Carpenter that in the sequel, the killer would have been caught, placed in a psychiatric institution, and the movie would really begin with him escaping and making his way back to the same house he terrorized before. He was going to call it Halloween. Carpenter took that spark and turned it into a forest fire. Clark had no issues with Carpenter turning that idea into arguably the most epic horror franchise in history. He said that his few sentences didn't equate to the fully fleshed out world and story that Carpenter created. Clark said Carpenter deserved all the credit for it. Love that journey for them. But seriously, this movie is so good. Like I said, not your average slasher. And a great example of why people should not overlook the horror genre. The contrast and interplay of these deep issues being addressed with the darkness of death, the stress of the holidays, but the lightness of all the glitter and glowy lights and imposed cheer makes for a killer combination. See what I did there? Well, all right. That wraps up this week's and well, this year's last episode. Thanks so much for joining me. Merry everything, happy new year, and stay spooky, friends. Mm -hmm.